you would, please take your Bibles out and turn them over to 2 Timothy as we continue our examination through the pastorals, at least these two letters in particular. As you know, we've been making our way through 1 Timothy and completed that last Sunday, and we'll begin our examination of a, a little bit shorter letter in 2 Timothy that Paul wrote to this young pastor in Ephesus. And of course, when we remember the themes of 1 Timothy, of Paul specifically dealing with uh, false teaching being very high on the list in terms of what is good, right, and true, how do we identify what is false, and then once we identify what is false, how do we as believers in the church deal with that? So he dealt with that. He dealt with how worship should look in the church the qualifications for servants and leaders, the qualifications for widows, how we treat one another, how the wealthy are to use their wealth, and how we are all to love and serve. In 2 Timothy, he doesn't completely abandon those themes. Uh, He'll touch on some of that stuff. But the primary goal of 2 Timothy is to remind Timothy that we live in trying times that we live in times of hardship and persecution, and how will we stand? What will we do? And so Paul is reminding Timothy or encouraging Timothy at this point, saying, these times are upon us. Now, he's saying this 2,000 years ago-ish, 2,000-ish years ago. Trying times are are upon us. How shall we live? And he roots all his instruction in the gospel. Well, in 2022, we can continue to say, trying times are upon us. How shall we live in the face of those? Which is why I think 2 Timothy is a great encouragement to us as we see uh, life unfold in this world. And I don't just mean uh, spiritually speaking. I mean, even in, even in the, the, the political nature and volatility of the world we live in, What is the ultimate answer to these questions that constantly come and bombard us? Well, we have to constantly come back to what is true, what is right, what is good, and what is beautiful. Because the world wants to suck us into a position of volatility, of refusing to see the image of God and other people, and drawing battle lines, demonizing people, making people and or, or, or people who they would claim to be the enemy, quote unquote, as something unhuman. And as believers who have a Christian worldview, we have to fight to remember that humans are created in the image of God. And humans created in the image of God do terrible things to other humans created in the image of God. And this is where we as the body of Christ, we rise above. And we will not get into that game. And so how shall we stand in the face of persecution? I hope you will come back week after week to hear how Paul encourages Timothy. But this morning, as we Uh, It is not my practice to typically do two verses of Scripture, but as we're laying the foundation for Timothy this morning, the second letter to Timothy, we're just going to cover these first two verses here in 2 Timothy. So follow along with me now in your Bibles as we read these two verses, this introduction to this letter, and we begin to unpack it. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible and errant word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. So ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing. Please pray with me. 
Father, this very simple, straightforward introduction is so packed with life, with hope, with goodness and truth. Unpack it for us this morning. May your spirit work in our minds and hearts to see and receive from you. Transform us, we pray, through the power of your word that has worked in us through your spirit. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. One of the words that stands out to me in this introduction, a word or one of the primary words, I should say, that stands out to me in this introduction is the word promise. Now, when we hear that word, we've talked about promise before, but it's a word that I think we're all familiar with. We understand the word promise even even at a basic level. Well, at the most basic level, what is a promise? A promise is a declaration of assurance, right? When I make a promise, I'm declaring that you can trust what I'm saying because I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do or I'm going to say what I'm going to say or however it works out. But it also, when we think about promise, it means not only that I am uh, willing, it means that I'm able to do what I said. In other words, you don't make a promise if you lack ability. You don't make a promise if you lack willingness, though promises are made in our culture when people lack one or both. But the heart behind the promise is I am both willing and able to do exactly what I say. Now, that's just a kind of a a glossary moment of what promise is. When we think scripturally what is promise, promise is deeply covenantal. It's deeply relational. So when you look back in the Old Testament and you see the idea of promise, so often you could interchange the word promise and covenant. You could interchange those two words. A covenant is a promise, and a promise is most often in Scripture a covenant. And so there's this relational aspect to it. So when I'm entering into promise with you, I'm in some sense entering into a relationship with you. And in the Old Testament, it was usually signified by a meal together. So when someone invites another person to their tent and they're going to prepare a small goat and they're going to have bread and they're going to have wine and they're going to have meat, it's not just a feast for the sake of feasting. It's it's signifying that we were entering into some sort of promissory relationship, i.e. a covenant. And so when we think about this word... It implies a guarantee about life because God's covenants and promises are often connected with life. So when God makes a promise to his people, he's entering into relationship, i.e. covenant, and the end goal is for his people to have a life in some capacity. When God says, I will do blank, whatever we want to fill that blank in with, we live in the certainty that that is what God will do. One of those examples that Jesus, when he's leaving the earth, he tells his disciples, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Beloved, that is a promise. I will never. He's not saying if the circumstances are right. It is a promise from God the Son to his people. I will never leave you nor forsake you to what end? That we might have life. That he might be present. That we might be preserved. That's the whole goal of promise, is life. It's a promise. When God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, or Jesus does, it's also a promise of presence. You hear that relational aspect. I am with you. I'm in relationship with you. I'm sticking with you. I'm not leaving you. That's the point of it. 
When we think about the word promise, Brad, why aren't you getting so on to this idea of promise? Because promise and life are poignant themes as we examine 2 Timothy. Paul wrote Timothy, as I said a moment ago, to remind him suffering and persecution are not only coming, they're upon you. Paul is presently experiencing that. But what is he reminding Timothy and us to do? Those things are coming. It happens. But we have a call and a commission to stand firm on the precepts of the gospel, the precepts of that message that God made him, that is Jesus who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might have the righteousness of of Christ, that transformation, that reality that whatever comes, or come what may, we could say, that there's this aspect in us working through us that cannot be taken, that cannot be killed, that cannot be chained, that cannot be quieted, that cannot be quelled. It's called the gospel. And so we stand there. This, what we're looking at this morning, 2 Timothy, is the last letter that Paul wrote. And as we get into it, you'll see he clearly anticipated his own execution. He knew his days were numbered. And as he'll instruct us, and we know from history, Paul ran his race faithfully. And you know what this letter stands to do? To exhort you and me to do the same thing, to run our race faithfully. And I love that he uses the word faithfully because he doesn't say without, you know, perfectly and without stumbling. Faithfulness is when I stumble, I get back up. Faithfulness is when I veer off the path, I straighten back up. Faithfulness is constantly coming back using the plumb line of Scripture to what is true to say when I veer or when I stumble, I'm going to recenter myself on what is true by the power of Christ. So Paul is exhorting us to follow his example, to run our race faithfully. And this promise, this, this promise and life motif should inspire courage in us. And we've often said courage is not being afraid. It's willing to do the right thing in the face of our own fears. It needs to inspire confidence in us. We can trust. The basis of confidence is trust. When we're confident in something, we trust that it is right and good. And so Paul's encouraging us to be confident in Christ as the people of God. And as we know, God's covenant love has never, ever guaranteed ease. Ever. Never. Ever once. It's never said, I love you so life will be easy, but what it does give, what it has guaranteed is life, the life of Christ which cannot be taken, hope, that sense of I have hope in something beyond myself, and peace, that inner sense of contentment that I belong to Christ, He has rescued me, and I will never just be twisting in the wind. Whether you believe that or not this morning, at whatever stage of hardship or grief or or whatever you're going through, whether it feels like that is true or not, beloved of God, if you're in Christ this morning, that is true. And it is true despite the circumstances you find yourself or I find myself in, despite the, the deep hurts, despite the deep sadness, despite the angst, despite the anger, despite all the feelings that will come and whisper in our ears to say it's not true, Paul reminds us, yes, it is true. And that is the hope of the Christian life. 
Well, just like 1 Timothy's introduction did, the introduction to this letter sets us up for the following content. Paul is real good about that in capturing the essence of a letter in just a few succinct sentences, and he does that for us here. Um, Paul's confidence here is in the fact that he has been commissioned by God. How does Paul run the race with excellence? Because God is working through him. His confidence stands on the fact that God sought him out, knocked him down on the road, confronted him with his own sin, raised him up in the newness of life, and sent him out. And so whatever he suffers, the chains, the beatings, the stonings, the being hit with sticks or shipwreck or lost or left for dead, none of that is the defining principle of who Paul is. Who Paul is, is a man converted, a man who's called, and a man who's commissioned by God. And so he's encouraging us to remember that, to remember that of ourselves. You're not going to be an Apostle Paul, and neither am I. We're not called to be. You're called to be you, and I'm called to be me. But in the grand scheme of God, God has given us a commission that we might stand in hard times. Paul's favorite prepositional phrase, and he uses it a ton, is in Christ Jesus. He uses it here, he'll use it again, and he uses it in other letters. When we think about Paul's favorite phrase, in Christ Jesus, what we need to understand, why is it one he uses so much? Because that's where Paul located his own life. It wasn't in Paul's learning, not in Paul's knowledge of the law, not in Paul's ethnic heritage. It was in Christ Jesus. And he's encouraging us to locate our lives there. He's encouraging Timothy, locate your life there. So if you have life in Christ this morning, i.e. you are converted, you are trusting in Christ alone for salvation, that would be uh, descriptive of you, then that is where we stand in the life of Christ. And so with those thoughts in mind, there's a central point I want for us to see, and it's this, that the Godhead gives life through the gospel, that the Godhead gives life through the gospel. So as we're looking at here, I'm, I'm taking this phrase right out of verse 1. The primary objective is to talk about Paul's description of the promise of life. What does that mean? What does that communicate for us? What are the implications of that? How does that ripple out into our own lives? What does that mean in how we live and how we carry ourselves and the ministries that we get involved with in our own personal callings? So all these things kind of come to bear. And I, you've heard me say this before, so I'm not saying anything I haven't said, but God's plan for His people is to give us abundant life. Now, the trick is, is do we live our lives actually believing that? Do we genuinely believe that what God, the abundance that God wants to give us is an abundance of life? Because I tell you, it's so easy for us to listen to the whispers of the enemy when life gets hard. Maybe we're going through a tragedy. Maybe, maybe our job is killing us. Maybe we're having family turmoil. Maybe we're having a disease or illness that feels so crippling. Maybe we're having mental and emotional issues. And for Brad to say, God wants to give us the abundant life, we look at our circumstances and say, my life doesn't feel very abundant. And that's exactly where Satan wants us to camp out. But if you're in Christ this morning, I don't deny any pain you might be going through, both physical, emotional, mental, or whatever tragedy or trauma you're dealing with, but I want you to know that the voice of Christ says you have abundant life in Him, and there is hope even beyond that turmoil. 
Now, the question to us is, will we believe and trust in that? That is the question that we all must answer. When Paul, Paul lays this out, so as we look at verse 1, we're kind of looking at the divine commission of Paul. Paul's commissioned by God for God's purposes to execute God's plan. So immediately, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul identifies himself as the sender. Now, as you might know, or maybe you don't, as clear as this seems to me and to many, many, many people who have studied Second Timothy, there are some liberal scholarship that try to debate that Paul didn't send this letter. When you look at the letter, it is consistent with the language of 1 Timothy. It is consistent with Paul's gospel philosophy and everything else. There is no doubt that Paul wrote this letter and that he wrote it to his young disciple, Timothy, who was at Ephesus. So we will leave that uh, text criticism stuff to the side because it has no bearing here. What Paul does do, so he's Paul, he's telling you, I'm the one sending the letter, and then he begins to describe himself, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, we'll stop right there for just a second. This is how Paul makes his primary identifying mark. He is an apostle of Christ Jesus. Just like with the first letter, we need to make this point. The word apostle is just a, it's just a Greek word. It comes, that's a, literally a transliteration of the Greek word apostolos, which just simply means to be sent. So in some general sense, Paul is saying, I am Paul, and I am sent by, or I am, I'm one who is the sent of Christ Jesus. He's been sent by Jesus to do his work. But when this word is applied to Paul, it's not just the general that he sent, although that's true. It has a much more specific uh, interpretation as well, that Paul is not just sent generally by Christ. He's been sent personally by Christ, having been commissioned by Christ, confronted by the risen Christ, and given the authority of Christ, so that now when Paul speaks, he speaks with the authority of Christ. His words are the words of Christ. And so when you get into, our, does the office of apostle continue on into this day and age? Well, it can't possibly, because to be an apostle was to have seen the risen Christ and been instructed by him, and there is no one in this day and age who makes that claim. So for Paul, he is telling you that I, what I say to you now, because he's an apostle of Christ Jesus, that what I say to you is authoritative, and that everything within this letter is the Word of God. That's exactly why that apostle of Christ Jesus is there, to remind us the authority and the authority of the Word itself. But this apostleship, he's not just an apostle, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. You have this little prepositional phrase there, of Christ Jesus. In the Greek, that's written in such a way as it's possessive. So Paul's not just his own apostle. He's not just an apostle for the people of God. He is an apostle who quite literally is possessed by Christ. Christ possesses him. This He's showing Christ's ownership. In other words, his life and work, his ministry, everything that he does is the work of Christ through him because he's not his own. He is of Christ. 
Now, this is where you and I can make a similar claim. If you're in Christ this morning, you are also of Christ. You are not your own. You don't labor, labor for your own goods. You labor and live and love for the glory and exaltation of Christ. Now, we don't do that perfectly, do we? But this is what it means to be of Christ, that we are owned by Christ, that Paul ministers in the strength and authority of Christ. So being possessed, that, that Christ possesses Paul, means that he can labor, as he'll talk about later on or earlier in other letters, about laboring in weakness. He can labor in weakness because it's not about him being strong. It's about him having the strength of Christ because he is of Christ Jesus. And so when we look at his, his ministry of, of letter writing, when we look at his ministry of preaching and teaching and even healing, we understand that it's not Paul who did it. It's Christ in Paul who did it. And Paul, by saying, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus, is making that very boast. He's not boasting in his abilities. He's boasting in the fact that who I am, what I am, what I do, how I live, is all of Christ. That is super humility. And may we learn to imitate that type of humility, to lay who we are at the feet of Christ and say, it is not about me. It is about you. And so in this way, we're called to emulate Paul that our strength and life, they flow from Christ, Christ in us, Christ working in us. And when that happens, it transforms how we live. It must. It has to. So he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Stop right there. By the will of God. So we're, we're getting this Trinitarian view here. This is not just the work of Jesus. It's the work of the Father and the Son. And so this, what, 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 Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus, commissioned by Christ, because it was God's will, the Father's will, for that to happen. And so when we think about what is God's will, well, if he's commissioned Paul to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, to preach the message of life, God's will, we can surmise, is life. That's what God wants to do, and He's going to clarify that when He talks about the promise of life here in just a minute. But God's will is life, but God's will isn't just life. God's will is freedom. Now, freedom from what? Free to do as we will? Free to live as we desire with no uh, consequences? No, that's not what biblical freedom means. God's will for freedom and life means the freedom to live our lives for the glory of God. And so, by the will of God, to live freely for God, that is the basis of Paul's message in every single letter that he writes. That's the basis of Pauline uh, theology. And so we see the Father, the Son, they work together, they give life, they give freedom, and our call is to live, to honor them. But when we think about the work of Father and the Son, the Father establishes life, He's established all things. And what does Jesus do? The Father establishes life, and sin brought death, right? So we're looking at the worldview aspect. Creation, God brought life. Fall, sin brought death. Redemption, Jesus comes to rescue His people. Restoration, and seals life for the people of God. There it is. There's that four-pronged thing for us. So the Father establishes life. Jesus seals it, and He seals it in such a way that it's miraculous because we live in a culture of death. 
We are born dead in sin. That's what Scripture tells us. We live dead in sin until Christ rescues us. And in the midst of death, He proclaims life. That is the gospel. And so as Paul is laying this out, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, he's reminding us that the life has been given and the life has been sealed through Christ. And Christ has given us the abundant life. By the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. That little phrase, promise of life, we've already talked about it some. I'm going to uh, repeat a few things. It is covenant language. But here's what it does do. Here's what it speaks to. We talk about the promise of life. You've heard me use that Hebrew word chesed many times. Paul is playing on a Hebrew theme here. Remember, chesed is God's covenant, His steadfast love. And the promise of life is the promise of steadfast life and love. So this promise of life is the promise of God's chesed love. And when we think about our relationship with God, it's defined by God's promise to us. When we talk, I'm going to use a fancy word. When you study covenant theology, there are two types of covenants. Bilateral, that means two people come together and covenant together and it's equal. And then there's a unilateral covenant. Covenant. That means one person makes the covenant, establishes it, and maintains it. We are in that type of covenant with God. God establishes covenant, and God maintains it. So God maintains the promise of life. And so our relationship with God is defined by His promise to us, His guarantee. What is His guarantee to you and me if we're in Christ this morning? I will be your God, and you will be my people. That's the promise of life, beloved. Paul is a minister of that promise. He has come to serve that promise. And every man who takes their calling as pastor seriously in some way has come under both the Father, the Son, and even under the apostolic authority to serve that promise, to proclaim it. That God is our God and we are His people. And what is the object of that promise? The object of that promise is not ease, convenience, or any other thing that we want to make life easier. It's life itself. I will be your God, you will be my people, unto life. That's the beauty of it, unto life. And so we're reminded that we have life through the gospel. Here is that, the promise of life in Christ Jesus, that prepositional phrase. I said this a moment ago, Jesus seals the promise of God. And this is just kind of how we ended on 1 Timothy. I love that he picks right back up with this idea. Where does life come from? Christ. Can it come from anywhere else? No. Can we find it in other places? No. Is there any other substitute that gives us what the life of Christ gives us? No. And so we embrace it we embrace it in all pain, in all hardship, in all joy, in all celebration, in all sadness, in all happiness, in up and down, in goodness and hard times, in oppression and freedom, because there is something about our new life in Christ that cannot be taken, no matter what life brings at us. And so, life godliness, they only come through Christ. There is no life outside the gospel. 
And if we're talking about last book's themes, godliness, faithfulness, I said we could use those words interchangeably. If we're ever going to pursue those, those are only going to happen when we purpose to live in Christ. I'm telling you, look at your own life. I've, I've been examining mine lately. Why do we get out of step with faithfulness and godliness? Because we stop purposing to live in Christ Jesus. We start purposing to live for our flesh. And it's often not that conscious decision that we make. It often comes in a decision of pragmatism or convenience or this would be a better solution or I don't even really have to give this much thought because I already know the answer. And sometimes it's true, right? But so often what happens is we get out of the life of Christ because we think we found an easier, better solution that maybe won't cost us as much. Maybe it seems more efficient in the moment. But we will not find godliness and faithfulness outside of the life of Christ. To Timothy, my beloved child. To Timothy, my beloved child. Remember, to 1 Timothy, it was to Timothy, my true son in the faith. You can see the affection deep in here. I don't think that one is better than the other, but I, I like the more explicit title, my beloved child. Timothy was loved by Paul. That's how Paul identifies him. Timothy, who's Timothy? Well, for one, we can say he's Paul's beloved child. So in this instance, Timothy is marked by love, not his love for Paul or anything else, but that he is loved. And I don't think it's too far a stretch when he says, Timothy, my beloved child, of course Paul loves him, but who else is Timothy loved by? Jesus so by identifying him as beloved, he's reminding us and Timothy, every reader who would ever read this, that Timothy is loved by both Paul and Christ, that Timothy, Timothy is identified as an object of love. I've said this before, but it bears repeating. I don't think we can hear this enough. In Christ, we are identified as objects of love. We are the beloved Yes, we are saints. Yes, we are new creatures. Yes, we are the righteous. Yes, we are the body of Christ. All those are true. We are. May we never forget we are the beloved. That there is one who sits in heaven, one in three who sit in heaven, who call us beloved. That your name is not your name. Your name is beloved. Then Paul kind of brings this introduction to a close by giving us these three ideas or these three themes, grace, mercy, and peace, and they're from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And so let's start here. When we look at the word grace, it's so easy to comb over that word just because we hear it so much. We think that, you know, we all understand that we're people of grace and God gives us grace. What is grace? Very simply stated, it's God's love, it's God's favor that is meant to teach and shape us. It's not meant to excuse. Don't think of grace as the divine excuse to do what I will. No. Grace is God's love and favor that is meant to shape us. Paul would tell the Romans that it is the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. The kindness of the Lord. We're often not used to hearing that. Often it's judgment. But we could just go a step further, say, did Paul mean mercy? Maybe. Did Paul mean grace? Maybe. Or maybe some combination of those two by saying kindness. That grace is meant to work repentance in us. It's meant to shape godliness in us. It's meant to work 
sin out of us. And if you and I and Timothy are ever going to live faithfully for the Lord and live godly lives, it will take grace. Grace to not respond how my flesh would like to respond. Grace to see people created in the image of God and not as, as I have them in my sense of judgment of them. Grace to love when people are hard to love. Grace to be sacrificial when I'd rather not. Grace to invest when I would rather keep. Grace to give away when I'd rather take. We need grace. Because it, does not come, it doesn't come natural to us to be gracious. That has to be worked in us. What comes natural to us is to lack grace and to be judgy and to be selfish. Grace, mercy. This word mercy here is really unique to the pastoral epistles, and it makes sense to me as a pastor. I understand why. As a human being, <laughs> I also understand why. When we think about mercy, mercy, let's put it like this. Mercy is genuine compassion. Mercy is genuine compassion for people. Being merciful towards someone is showing genuine compassion. Not quickly jumping to the judgment lever, but withholding judgment and saying, how can I be compassionate in this? And sometimes mercy has to be severe. In other words, sometimes it does take a sharp barb or a goad. You know, a goad is the thing they would prod oxen will that hurt, that made them go. That is also a mercy. But he adds mercy here because he understands as a young pastor, Timothy need it, needs it, would need it. Pastors need mercy. People just like you, we struggle with the same things you do. And we, we all in this room bear burdens. And sometimes pastors bear a few more burdens because they're bearing the burdens of other people. So Paul is reminding Timothy, because remember, the church is reading this. So he's reminding Timothy and the church, show mercy to your leaders. But leaders, extend mercy to your people. You don't have to rule with an iron fist. Love can do the thing it needs to do when we do it rightly. Right? So mercy, when we think of mercy, it is, we said it's genuine compassion. It is God's kindness and living life in community. You can't have a merciless community. When you have a merciless community, you have death. And this is where we as believers need to be quick to show mercy and very slow to judge. I'm not saying we can't make judgments. You learn lessons about people and you remember them and you make judgments about situations, but very slow to make objective final judgments and very quick to give mercy in a situation insofar as we deem it's right. Because our propensity is to ask for mercy and give judgment. So if we, won't judge, or if we want mercy, may we be quick to extend it. He rounds out this triad of three with the word peace. This is one of my favorite words in Scripture, both in Old and New Testament. Because as I said to you a moment ago, peace, what is peace? Well, ultimately, peace is a sense of belonging. Like when we're out of peace, we feel like we can't fit in here, we don't fit in there, we don't have this, or we don't have that. And I, in other words, there's some, in some sense, I'm not belonging. But when God gives peace, He gives us a sense of belonging in His family. 
so that now we're no longer his enemy. We are his child. We are no longer out of community with other people. We are called into community with other people who also share this peace. Now we have something that we didn't have. But when we think of peace, as I've said before, it is not the absence of conflict. We still experience conflict when we have peace with God and peace with one another. That's part of living in this world. In this world, you will have tribulation is what Jesus told us. But he never backed down from the peace that we have by means of the Spirit. So no, it's not the absence of conflict. It is the absence of the notion that we are left to ourselves. That's where peace flows from. I'm not left to myself. I'm not alone. But here's the thing. We look at a world that has no peace, and what I would exhort us as a body this morning is that sometimes we live like we don't have peace. You and me, Christians, we live like we don't have peace, and we will pursue all sorts of lesser things for the thing that is already ours in Christ. You've heard me say this phrase before. Humans do most of what they do in a pursuit for peace. Now, they don't articulate it that way, but I'm telling you, the addict pursues his or her addiction for a sense of peace. They want, what they, they want the peace they think that, that that drug, that drink, or whatever is going to give them at the end of that moment, and they pursue it. And yet it's fleeting. It doesn't give peace. It gives numbness for a moment only for that to begin again. The workaholic, he or she, they work for peace. They want that sense of belonging, that sense of accomplishment, that sense of contentment that they think, if I just work one more hour, I'll have it. And it's elusive and it never comes. The greedy for the world's goods, they amass for peace. That next dollar will give it. Just one more dollar, I'll have it. Just one more thing. Just one more of this. Just one more of that, I'll have it. It's all for peace. Those obsessed with their body and the image, they exercise, they sculpt for peace. They're not doing it just so they can have a six-pack and look ripped in the mirror. I mean, that's a nice bonus for them, I imagine. But the inner thing they're going for is finally that sense of, I fit, I belong, this is where I should be. And it never comes. It never comes. Because to eat a french fry is sin. To have a slice of pizza is sin. To give away some of my goods is sin. To not pursue that addiction is sin. To not work until I'm dead is sin. I'm telling you the false ideas that happen around peace. So people do those things for peace. And here's what I would say to you. That peace, that shalom, that irene, that's the Hebrew and the Greek, is in Christ. Working, body image, money, that addiction, those things, what those things lead to is ultimate death because they promise a life and they just keep tempting you. Come one step on, come one more step, come one more step. And what, they, what you don't see behind that object is there's a cliff and they're just drawing you in to fall off it. But when Christ says, come to me, he doesn't say, well, if you'll come, I'll give you peace. 
He picks us up and says, in me, you have peace. Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, labor in the peace of God. Brothers and sisters of the chapel, labor in the peace of God. Why? How do we know that we have it? How do we know that it's objective? Because it is from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. These blessings flow from the Godhead, and they are completely His gift to us. Two words here that should stand out. The word father, that, you know, not everybody had a great relationship with their dad, and I'm not, that's, that's another point. But in this context, when we think of father, think of protector, think of provider, think of connected relationally, that this God, the Father, is our protector. He is our provider. We do have a relationship with Him, and He gives all that we need to flourish, to not just survive, but to flourish in truth and salvation. And I love that Paul here connects Jesus or Christ Jesus, our Lord. We can't miss what he's doing. He's connecting the humanity, Jesus, the man who was born and lived, and the deity, Christ the Lord. He's bringing these two together, reminding us that the incarnate Christ, the God-man, that these things are sealed in him. As Lord, he is ruler. He is covenant keeper. He is king. And as Jesus, he was the sacrificial lamb who came and was crucified, dead, and buried. And on the third day, he arose from the dead and he ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And from there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. He connects his lordship and his sacrifice and says, these things are sealed in the blood of Christ who rules and reigns. And so why do we have promised life? And why do we labor from that point of strength? Because Jesus reigns and the Father has commissioned. We can endure precisely because God gives us His life. So often we forget that our most pressing need every day, every day is to be immersed in the life of Christ to be immersed in the life of Christ. We'll, we'll chase life in any number of things. I listed off a few just a moment ago. And no matter how often humans come up empty, we can still be compelled to pursue those idols. But it might work this time. It might, it might give me that sense of whatever this time. But as Christians, we're, we're called to stand. We're called to stand. And we can only stand in the power of of the life of Christ. Timothy and his pastoral ministry represents exactly what we all need to remain faithful. We need grace, we need mercy, and we need peace. We need boldness in the face of opposition. And we always have to remember that we too are beloved. And the love that marks us is a love that carries us through. And as the hymn writer says, it is a love that will not let us go. Be encouraged this morning as we root ourselves in Christ Jesus because the promise of life has been sealed in Christ Jesus. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word this morning and its simplicity and its beauty, its power, its capacity to reach into the very heart of who we are and remind us of truth, to not let us believe a lie to compel us to have the peace that is already ours and to not feel a sense of we have to pursue it in something else. 
Oh God, we yield to you. We put our hope in you. We trust in you. And now we ask you to lead us. Father, we thank you for all that you do. Be with us, we pray, in Christ. Amen.